Thank you for praying alongside me. If you, uh, maybe this is your, your first time or you're new, we are right in the middle of a new sermon series called Moments in Matthew. Uh, so let me kind of just catch you up to speed. We kicked this off back in December uh, and, and kind of give you the, the brief <clears throat> overview, if you will, to catch you up to speed because we're right in the middle of, of the Sermon on the Mount today. And so there's a lot that's happened um, but the cool thing is, is first, uh, the chapters one through three, we were able to see Jesus's story unfold right onto the storyline of the Old Testament. Here's what I mean. Jesus is the continuation and the fulfillment of the entire biblical story about God and his people, the people of Israel. We kicked off the series in December, uh, looking at Matthew's account with the genealogy of Christ, and we clearly saw that the Messiah is from the line of David, the son of Abraham, the one who will bring God's blessing to all the nations. And we kicked off uh, with the supernatural birth, that all, we got to see all the Old Testament prophecies become fulfilled, that he's no... Uh, that he's no mere human. Instead, Jesus, as Matthew says, is Emmanuel, God with us. And we also saw that Jesus is the new and better Moses. And here's what I mean by that. Like Moses, Jesus came up out of Egypt. Moses crossed the Red Sea, and we saw Jesus pass through the waters of baptism. Moses entered the wilderness for 40 years, and as Pastor Canaan last week preached, we saw Jesus entered the wilderness for 40 days and was tempted. And then as we'll see here shortly, just as Moses went up onto the mountain to receive a word from God, the law of God from Israel, Jesus now, in this narrative of Matthew, goes up to the mountain to deliver his first sermon, known as the Sermon on the Mount, Son of God delivers his first sermon. Church, Jesus is the promised better Moses, amen? Jesus is going to deliver his people from slavery to redeem his people once and for all. And he's gonna bring about this new covenant relationship between God and his people. A covenant, hear me, not sealed by the blood of bulls and goats, but sealed by the perfect lamb, Jesus Christ, this new covenant that he's drawing us into. And we, you see, Matthew does such a beautiful job unfolding this storyline of Jesus in a way that doesn't just point us to redemption. No, it, he points us to the Redeemer. And we see that here in the text. Instead, he actually, uh, it doesn't just say, hey, redemption is coming. He says the Redeemer, the one who will pull you out of darkness, is here. It's not just another good teacher, not just another good communicator, he is Emmanuel, God with us. And at this point in the story, Matthew kind of goes into great detail about Jesus's first sermon. Again, kind of a big, most churches would look at the Sermon on the Mount and at least have 12 weeks just on that. I've got one sermon with just the middle couple of verses in here. So just bear with me, but I want you to understand what's happening here because the Sermon on the Mount is a big deal. Uh, Jesus is proclaiming God's rescue plan of redemption. And this plan involves kind of a, an upside down kingdom, if you will. Meaning this, Jesus says things like, uh, blessed are the poor and needy for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. <clears throat> blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the persecuted, the beatitudes. 
Jesus tells all the people here that he did not come to abolish the law, but hear me, to fulfill the law. He came to transform people's hearts, mine and your. He came to transform our hearts to love God and to love people. He's setting apart a new kingdom as he's preaching this divine message on this mountaintop. Now he begins to draw his disciples, all of his followers, his true followers into a heart of repentance that they would turn from their sin, no longer live this way, no longer live in the kingdom of self, but turn to the kingdom of God and that they would repent and that they would pick up their cross and that they would follow him. It's this first time where Jesus is calling and bidding people to say, hey, follow me. And that's where we pick up this morning, right in the middle of this divine sermon where Jesus is on the mountaintop, he begins to teach his disciples specifically, as we'll see, how to pray. So my desire for each of us this morning is that we would see our Father's divine invitation to commune with himself through prayer. So Matthew chapter uh, 6, starting in verse 5, would you read with me? Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 through 8, first. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners or to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need before you ask Him. Whenever, did you hear that? Whenever you pray, not if you pray, but whenever, three times. This is Jesus' word. This is red letter in in the script. He says three times, whenever you pray, but when you pray. When you pray, Christian, hear this morning, hear this, please. It's not, this ex, it's not just an expect, expectation of you to pray. <clears throat> it's not just a spiritual discipline to grow in regularly. Instead, this is the divine invitation from the Son of God. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help him in a time of need. Church, this is an invitation to commune with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit from Jesus himself. Our, uh, our culture, I think we'd all agree with this, is totally saturated with self-sufficiency, right? People do what they want, how you wanna do it, when you wanna do it, your kingdom, your world, they don't need to cry out for help because there's no need for that. There's an app, there's a YouTube video, there's something along the way that you can invest your time, your money, your resources into that will help you be a better person. And Christians, unfortunately, we are not um, any different. We just get swept right up in this. We're no different than the busy Martha from the scriptures where we do many of our tasks our little checklist, legalistic type things where we we say, yeah, I did this, I did this. We're just like Martha and we fail to sit with Mary at the feet of Jesus. Maybe we don't pray because we don't understand God. 
or worse, we don't pray because we don't love or trust or believe that we really need God. Since God doesn't matter to us, then that's, that's how we think about prayer. Prayer doesn't matter to us. Without prayer, hear me, we will always be drawing from an empty well of self-deceit operating out of our own strength. Always. The gospel of Jesus says, come to me. So we just prayed about, for all of those who are weary, he says, come to me. Drink from the well that never goes dry. Everything else is meaningless. Everything else will leave you wanting more of something. The only satisfaction that we have is the well that never runs dry, and his name is Jesus. And he says, come to me. Michael Reeves in his book, I'm reading this book right now by Michael Reeves. It's called Authentic Ministry. Been super convicting, super helpful. He says this, prayer is the first and main way true faith expresses itself. Prayerlessness is practical atheism. Prayerlessness boasts pride in your life that says, I've got this, I can do this. We want boldness, but we don't even ask for it. We have a message to proclaim and a spirit to empower us, but our pride convinces us we don't need prayer, and in essence, we do not need God. Family, prayer is birthed from the gospel that preaches our dependence on God and not on ourselves. That's why Jesus says when you pray. It's not a matter of if, it's when you pray. And he gives us, right here in the text, clear instructions how to pray. But before that, I love, I love the teachings of Jesus. There's always like, he either answers a question with a question, but here, instead of just saying, do this, he says, don't do this. How not to pray. Don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand in the synagogues and on the street corners. Instead, what does he say? Go to your private room, shut your door, and pray to your father who is in secret. Now, why, why does he say this? I think he says this because he knows our tendency to desire man's approval over receiving the approval of the father through the son. Maybe that's just me. Maybe he just knows me so much that he put that there for me. He knows that I want to be seen by other people for the things that I do more than I feel I'm seen by the Father. That's why he says, go to the Father in secret. He's the Father who sees and he knows our hearts. And because of that, Jesus says, I know you, Matt. Just, I'm gonna preach to myself this morning. You can just participate if you want, listen. He says, Matt, I know you. And because of that, I'm gonna give you a better way to pray. Kent Hughes says, being acutely aware of the human tendency to pray in order to gain the praise of others, our Lord provides a helpful remedy. Get to the least sanctified place in the house. Don't go to the street corners. Don't, don't boast of your prayers. Get to the least sanctified place in the house. If I could just encourage you very practically here, if you just a little nugget to take with you, find a time and place that you can have a regular rhythm of prayer in a secret or quiet place. It's what Jesus is inviting you into, where you can withdraw from all the noise for just a minute and be attuned to what the Father has for you. 
It's an important part. If Jesus says it, it's an important part. So it'd be real easy. This sermon would go great if I could just say, do this because Jesus said to do this. But, but there's more to that. There's more to that. It's got to start in our heart. And I get it. Like, I know that your world is loud. Some of y'all are thinking, like, quiet place? Have you been to my house? Yes, I have. I've had dinner with your family, and you, in return, have had dinner with my family. All right? So I get the noise. I get the loud craziness of life. Find a quiet place and sit at the feet of Jesus because your father desires you to be with him. Now, does that mean you, you can't pray outside of your quiet place? No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Think less of the posture and less of the place and more on the heart of the person here. The Bible clearly shows that one can pray sitting, standing, kneeling, uh, on your face before the Lord. There's all sorts of postures, and Christ himself prayed in all of those postures. We see in Isaiah 29, 13, the Lord says this, the people draw near with their mouths, and they honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. You see, the problem with, with prayer is it's not the place, not the quietness. That's just a great application problem is, is within our heart. Jesus says, don't pray like them for they have their reward. What's their reward? It's rooted in the approval of mere men. That's why they go to the synagogues. That's why they go to the street corners. Uh, all the commentaries as I was studying this, the street corners literally, uh, in, in what they would do is go to the busiest intersections all right, it'd be like standing on the traffic circle of 377 and just praying, just out loud. You want everybody to see. I want all these thousands of cars to see. He's saying, don't do that. Their approval is just in the honks you get as people are passing you on the highway. The same men <clears throat> that approve of their prayers also approved of their Messiah one minute, but the next minute turned their back on him and struck him down. And that is what seeking approval of men will do every time. I will fail you as a pastor. Your pastors are not perfect. We will fail you. You will fail one another. Husbands and wives and sons and daughters and friends will sin against one another. The one who never fails because his promises are yes and amen is God the Father. And he says, come sit with me in a quiet place, just you and I. He's readying your heart for what he has for you. So Christian, your reward for a sincere, obedient heart of prayer is that you're seen by the Father. Not my words, seen by the Father. Matthew chapter six, that's more than enough. Like that's what Jesus desires, a heart of obedience that longs to commune with the Father, Son, and Spirit. So hear me, a follower of Jesus, what Jesus is calling them into is somebody who delights in the Trinity, who has a heart and identity rooted in Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. Not in your works, not in the works or approval of another person, but that is rooted in Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And as if the location and posture wasn't enough, Jesus goes on and he even addresses, if you look what's next, he addressed the content of their prayers. What does he say? Don't babble. Very, very direct. Don't babble like the Gentiles. Like if you're a Gentile there, you're thinking, well, that's kind of rude. What are you saying that for? Jesus said, hey, don't, don't babble like them with their many words. Look at Ecclesiastes 5. 
or listen to Ecclesiastes 5, 1 and 2. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Better to approach in obedience than to offer the sacrifice as fools do, for they ignorantly do wrong. Do not be hasty to speak and do not be impulsive to make a speech before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. Jesus is is saying here that our father has no need for babble, for lengthy prayers full of fancy words. Like I get it, you're sitting at communion group and somebody says, all right, who wants to close this in prayer? The heads go down. It's like, oh, I think my phone went off. And, you know, nobody wants to pray. It's because we put this, this pressure on ourselves. Like, we have to have some fancy words. And then we start praying, and we're, like, using words we don't even use in normal conversation. And the Father's just inviting you in to have a conversation with him. Not some theological expansion of, of what this means and that means. He's just wanting to com- you to commune with him, to get to know him. He lacks no information. That's why you don't need the babble. God, the Father lacks no information. Why do I know that? Because Jesus says it. Your Father knows the things you need even before you ask him. What confidence and what encouragement that is for us as Christians. Romans 8.26 goes to the extent of even saying that the Father can discern the groanings too deep for words. Wow. What intimacy the Father wants and desires for his children. Groaning's too deep that we don't even know how to say. He knows. John Calvin says this. Pray to God with all reverence, like a servant addressing a king. But pray also with simplicity, with directness and sincerity, like a child asking something of his loving father. That's the divine invitation here. Drawn in to sit with the Father, to speak clearly, directly, converse with him. Your Father sees you and he knows you. The life breath of our walk with Christ as Christians and also corporately as a church is not our talent or how well we serve. Let me say that again. The life breath of our walk with Christ as Christians and also corporately as a church is not our talent or how well we serve. It's prayer. Not if, but when you pray. There is this active dependence upon God. So let's go back to the word. Let's let the word of God feed our prayers this morning. Jesus continues on with what we are to pray and he says like this, pray like this. This is uh, you know, a lot of football teams will, will quote this before they go out on the football field or, sport, you know, sporting teams or it's probably one of the most quoted uh, outside of John 3.16 sections of scripture. Let's see what it says. Jump into the Lord's Prayer with me, verse nine. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. 
Real quick. Not real quick. We're doing okay. Our father has huge implications here. And here's what I mean. Jesus said, your father three times in the previous section. All right, you can go back and look at that first section. He says, your father three times. And all throughout the gospel, he talks about his father. He'll say things like, my father in heaven. This is the first and the only time where he actually expounds on this communal fellowship. In other words, Jesus, church, is inviting us into a relationship between father and son. He says, our father. Would you pray like this? Disciples, would you pray alongside with me? Our father. R.C. Sproul says, he has given us the right and privilege to come into the presence of the majesty of God and address him as father because indeed he is our father. He has adopted us into his family and made us co-heirs with his only begotten son. Our father has huge implications, Christian. Like this solidifies the, the reward that Jesus mentioned earlier. He mentioned it previously, to not only be seen by the father, but to be adopted into this new family as brothers and sisters, co-heirs with Christ. Family, is this not the good news of the gospel? Like this is the good News that we were not left to ourselves, having to find our own protection or our own blessing. We're not just throwing up some empty phrases to God, some desperate prayers to this distant God who might or might not hear us. Michael Reeves goes on and he says, with boldness and with joy, we get on our knees. And with fearless faith, we pray, our Father in heaven, God's fatherly heart is near to all who call on him. What beautiful truth that is. So Christian, if you are here this morning and you've found it hard to approach the sovereign king of the universe as father, maybe you just feel cold and distant and you're like, yeah, Matt, I hear that. I've got a terrible relationship with my earthly father and now you're telling me about our father. Like I'm hearing that. If you feel cold and distant, perhaps maybe just reminding you of your heritage in Christ this morning. You are co-heirs with Jesus, Christian. Beautiful truth to cling to. When you don't want to go on, when you don't think that God hears these prayers, no, 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 that is a, a lie straight from the enemy. You are co-heirs with Christ. And friend, if you're here this morning and, and find no delight in this God of the universe because you just, you view him as some just far off other being who couldn't care any less about you. Man, I hear what you're saying, but man, I think God is a God and there's all things point to him and you know, all this type of stuff. He really doesn't have time to handle my mess. Friend, I pray that you hear the words of Jesus this morning and that you would that his words would be good news to your weary soul. God's fatherly heart is near to all those who call on him. As Jesus continues on in this model prayer, if you will, we see six petitions throughout the structure of his prayer. The first three are all divine petitions focused on God and they contain the word your, your. Your name be honored, right? So what does that mean? If you were around any of our equipped classes, we talked, uh, one specific uh, night was on equipped to pray. We talked about the acronym ACTS. 
A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. That comes from this model prayer that Jesus gives us. We first adore who he is and what he has done when we pray. And that's exactly what Jesus himself does. That's exactly what he does. Your name be honored, God the Father. We have nothing else to offer him but our honor. And that's what Jesus says. So the first, your, your name be honored. The second, your kingdom come. This might be kind of hard to wrap our minds around, not just because we, we might fail to, to not understand it, but because it goes directly against our little kingdoms for ourselves. Like it sounds good to say, hey, yeah, your kingdom come. To pray for his kingdom means we must denounce our kingdom first. Right? Like if you're asking for his kingdom, if you're going to quote this prayer, maybe it's out of habit, I would caution you. Because when you say this, you have to have a heart of obedience. Because you're saying, my kingdom, I'm denouncing myself, and I want your kingdom to come. What great implications that has for even as, if you were to pray this every day. What a mindset. What a shift in our day. Your kingdom come. It sounds great, but it rubs against our prideful hearts every time we say this. And Jesus corrects, he corrects our self-centered prayers with this God-centered one, which leads right into the third petition, the third your. So we have your name be honored, your kingdom come, and then your will be done. We ought to be asking for his kingdom to come and also his will to be done, meaning his will will fully be accomplished now as it is in heaven in his um, and ultimately, his will will be accomplished ultimately uh, forever now as it is in heaven. You cannot pray this prayer without humbly submitting fully to him. His kingdom come and his will be done. That's why Jesus starts with his name honored. His kingdom come, his will be done. More practically, God's beautiful will for your life is a life full of adventure that calls you into him. His will. Like to see God's will clearly, you have to take your eyes off of your own kingdom and lift them to the one true king of the kingdom. Name be honored, kingdom come, your will be done. And then he goes on with three more petitions, Jesus does, that are all focused on our personal needs. So we go from divine petitions to now personal petitions. You see this shift, his name, his kingdom, his will, now we see our everyday physical and spiritual concerns. Give us today our daily bread. Well, what does that mean? What are we praying for? A loaf of bread? What does this look like? D.A. Carson says that we're not to pray for our greeds, but for our needs, for every physical and material need. One of God's names, church, is Jehovah Jireh. He is our provider. Carson goes on and says, your heavenly father is the great provider for all the earth. He gives rain when the earth needs refreshment. He calls the sun from its hiding when the earth needs warmth. He gives to the animals their flood, the flowers, their beauty, the birds, their shelter, and you and me, everything that we need. Jehovah Jireh. We see the petition in Proverbs 38 and 9 behind me. Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food I need. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you, saying, who is this Lord? Or I might have nothing and, I, and steal 
profaning the name of God. Church, his grace is sufficient. As, as Jehovah Jireh, provider, ask him for your daily bread. Ask him. God, would you be my provider today? Third petition, forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We continually depend on him for all things, all right? The, the, the spiritual, the physical, but listen to this. Not just for our daily food, but for our daily forgiveness. You turn on the news, you'd see pretty quickly, right, that our economy is pretty, pretty terrible, pretty, pretty bad off, has been for a while. We just keep borrowing and borrowing and borrowing, but our spiritual economy has been in the Great Depression for thousands of years, Listen to what Kent Hughes says. Our debt is astronomical, and we should all be red in our faces for how much we are in the red, both personally and corporately. Meaning, we owe so much to God for our sin. Here, Jesus says, set your pride aside and ask your Father to forgive your debt. You cannot pay off your debt. The beauty of this is that you can be forgiven. All of your past, all of your present, all of your future indebtedness only because, hear me, Jesus came to give his life a ransom for many. Full, full payment for your sin and my sin. Like you know that feeling, right? You work, to, you work hard to pay something off. Maybe you don't, I'm not for sure. Uh, you work hard and you get to that and you're like, man, I finally paid this off. Like what a feeling this is, a feeling of, of relief. And that is so minute compared to eternity in the debt that we are in to the Father. Christian, you know why this is here. Why are we asking the Father to forgive you? To remind us that you did nothing. You, Christian, did nothing. The grace received is from him. You owe nothing, thank you. Thankfully, to Jesus Christ, he paid our infinite debt through his death. He paid the price in full. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Jesus goes on in verse 14 and 15, for if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your father will not forgive your offenses. I'm going to lean on the words of John Stott to help us understand this maybe a little bit more. Once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we have minimized our own sin. Being forgiven, according to Jesus, means that you must be forgiving. If you've been forgiven, then you have to be forgiving, not in order to be justified by God, but because we are justified. Not to earn his favor, not to earn his forgiveness. You can forgive because he has forgiven you. So don't, don't get caught up in this and think, well, man, what, what does this mean for salvation? No, Jesus is saying, because of the work that I've done, I've paid your ransom, your debt. Because of this, now you can walk in freedom and in forgiveness to your brothers and sisters, to those who have wronged you. 
Being forgiven means you must be forgiving. And then he says, do not bring us into temptation, but to deliver us. Lead us not, but deliver us. We need forgiveness of all past sins, but we also and finally need assistance in overcoming any and all of our future sins. We know from last week uh, with Pastor Cain in chapter four that God's spirit is the one that brought Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Like this petition is for us to be totally dependent on God's providence, on his protection, and on his power. It's a, it is a prayer of a weak person to a strong God. That's what this is. It's a prayer of a weak person to a mighty, powerful, strong God. That doesn't just say, uh, do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from all evil. I think there's a reality here that we all, maybe, maybe not, I, I would say there is a reality here that uh, we live in a dark, fallen world, and the enemy wants to come and still kill and destroy. Like spiritual warfare, yes, it is a thing. Enemy wants nothing more than to snatch you. That's why it says, deliver us from all evil. John Piper says, prayer, I love this. I read this a long time ago and then kind of got, kind of circled back to it here recently. He says, prayer is a walkie-talkie for warfare, spiritual warfare, not a domestic intercom for increasing our conveniences. When we abandon prayer, we're going to battle with our own resources at best and to lose interest in the battle at worst. Church, prayer is a divine invitation to fight sin. And if I can just be very clear, members of Grace Church, I need you to pick up the walkie-talkie and I need you to be praying for your brothers and sisters. Please, I'm asking you and begging you to take the word of God Take these petitions to him. Pick up your, your, your uh, walkie-talkie and help us fight sin and pray for one another. So there's a lot here, how not to pray, but clearly how we are to pray. It's all lined out by Jesus. I mean, this seriously could be 12 weeks just on this prayer. There's a, so much here in the middle of this powerful Sermon on the Mount, but my goodness, his grace and his mercy that we have seen so clearly, we see this divine invitation from the Father to commune with him in prayer. You can go to him as sinful as, as you feel that you are because he is your loving Father and the devil loves to just whisper these little lies peppered throughout your week that, hey, don't, just don't pray today. You're not, you're not worthy enough today. You, you did this yesterday and man, if God really knew your heart and the darkness that you're wrapped up in, I just wouldn't even bother him right now. He's got bigger things to worry about. Little whispers. If you're not careful, those whispers turn into shouts. Don't listen to those. Press into the truth of the gospel today. Go to the Father because he sees you and he promises he will hear you and he will answer you. Let's pray. Father, we... Uh, come before you, God, just thanking you for um, all that you do, who you are, your, your goodness. We honor you. We adore you and your faithfulness. No sense in, in making anything else up. Just practice what I'm preaching here. Father, you are God and we are not. 
We adore you. Thank you for loving us. We confess our sins to you today. I hope we do, that we confess our sins, that we need you. Help us to forgive those who've, who've wronged us as you have forgiven us. We confess our need for, for grace for ourselves, probably. Can we even forgive our own selves? God, I, I pray for grace. Just confess that, that we lack that for ourselves and for other people. God, I thank you that you love us and you pursue us in this moment, like right now. God, you are pursuing the hearts of your people. The Father sees and the Father knows and the Father hears. Nothing is in hiding. You know our hearts. God, would you hear our cries this morning? Those that are weary, would they lift their eyes? If they can't, would you send a brother and sister to them to minister to them? Would you give a brother and sister a good word of encouragement for somebody this morning? God, would you, uh, would your spirit just uh, empower and embolden each of us? God, and then would you save? I ask, Father, if there's somebody here that um, looks at prayer as some magical thing to get to you, Lord, I pray that they would just ask questions, that I'm here, I'm available, Pastor Lucas is here. We, we'd love to just sit and have these conversations. What does it mean to pray? What does it mean to give your life to Jesus? Would you save somebody? Would they taste and see that you are good this morning? Throw in the towel of self-sufficiency and say, I, I, don't, I can't do this. I've tried, I've failed, I cannot do this. We trust that you're at work. You are good, you are right, and you're perfect. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name.